our culture that, that, that goes away, that will take you away from God. And, it's, um, and, and she talked a lot about apocalyptic writing and apocalyptic literature and specifically the nation of Babylon, which is a symbol in, in, the, in the Bible. The, the Babylon is, yes, Babylon was the enemy of God's people at one point in time, but that was like centuries ago, millennia ago. And yet the Bible still keeps bringing up this idea of Babylon because there's always a new Babylon. There's a perennial Babylon. And, and just look at me. I, I know we're diving right in and kind of like, you know, you, you're probably feeling a little bit like, um, I don't know, you look a little confused. So I'm, I'm just going to pause for a second. This week, you had your life. You went to work. You went to school. You hung out with your friends, your coworkers. You, you did what you needed to do. And then all throughout that week, there were things happening. You were interacting with people, with culture, with society, with, with your friends, family. And there's a current in all of those places. There's a culture. We talk about work culture. We talk about a culture at a school. Is it a good culture? No, we didn't feel like it was a good culture, so we moved our kids. We talk about this kind of stuff all the time. There's currents in our culture that take us to where we want to go or where we don't want to go, and, and, and that works spiritually. And that's what Christy talked about the first week is the contrast between God's kingdom and the kingdom of Babylon. Then the next week I talked about McDonald's for our soul and the idea that each and every one of us has some sort of activity that, that's like, it's, you know, maybe you don't eat McDonald's, but you, you know, watch Netflix until you can't see straight, you know, or, or you, like you, we've all got our thing that was probably is we should probably not have in our lives. Right? We should probably work to get rid of it. We should break out of the lullaby. And, and, and guys, I just, I, I can't tell you as we've been doing this series how much I've just been seeing that everywhere, that, that we're being lulled everywhere we look, every time we're on our devices, every time we turn on the television, everything is just algorithmed and, and um, it's, it's manufactured so that we consume more and it's just, it's just the right bite sizes. So we keep going and keep going and keep going. And it's time, like we were talking about how the lullaby, we need to wake up from the lullaby. We need to cut certain things out of our lives that are holding us back. We need to get rid of the McDonald's. McDonald's for our soul. It is something that feels good initially. That's followed by immediately by regret, which is followed by cancer. That's, that's the McDonald's, right? That's what we're fighting against and you know like what was yours at the end of that time I was like okay what's yours maybe you've been thinking about that maybe you've been kind of going to battle against that and then the the third week uh, was probably my favorite sermon at least that I preached because I can't say it's my favorite sermon because my wife preached one sermon and then Nathan preached another one last week but the favorite one that I preached so far was like it's time Jesus's idea of like like there's comes a point in time where we need to act like our hair is on fire we need to just cut the crap and be serious. We need to be honest with ourselves and others and just get serious about the sin that's in our life and, and, and the, the havoc that it's wreaking in our lives. Um, we did story time with, with C.S. Lewis. That was fun. And then last week, if you were here, Nathan preached an awesome sermon on the holiness of God because nothing will break through our lullaby, break into our lullaby than looking at a holy and perfect God and, and in a sense being humbled by that, but also being inspired by that. And he talked about uh, the cycle of repentance or something like that at the end of six things. So good. Um, if, you, if you want that, that's on the, the podcast. 
And then lastly, today, to land the plane, the final countdown, I want to circle back on to apocalyptic literature and take a really, really good look at the book of Revelation. It's going to have a lot to say about our lullaby and breaking our, our lullaby. And here's the thing. This was challenging. First off, I did crazy amounts of studying and reading. I read through Revelation a couple times. One, one of them was in a full sitting. I just sat and read through the whole book. I'd never done that before. It was so good. Um, and then I realized, I was like, man, coming to this, the book of Revelations, we have a very broad understanding. Some of you guys have maybe studied it, read it before. Maybe you've read it before cover to cover like I have. Some of you know very little about it. You know, like if you're going to ask the average person about the, the um, uh, book of Revelation, which I did to my daughter. Do you mind if I share what you shared yesterday? I, so I asked Jovi yesterday. I was like, hey, when you think of the book of Revelation, what do you think of? And she's like, I don't know. She's like, is it like the last book, right? I'm like, yes. She's like, yes. You know, last book, the end, it's the end of the Bible, God's message, the end of God's message. It's, it's kind of the end of time. Um, She's like, there's something about dragons, horses, and bad guys, okay? And then, you know, Jesus was on a horse with a sword, and maybe there was some fire in there, you know? And that was like, that's it. And if, if that's you, I'm so glad you're at church today. Because I'll, honestly, we're going to talk about this here in a second. The book of Revelation can be like, I just don't even know where to start with this thing. And we're going to... I'm going to, by the end of today, I, I, my goal is you're going to know where to start with this thing. And here's, just, just to, to kind of boil it down so we don't miss, here's, here's the real message of the book of Revelation. And literally, this is the only slide I have because the rest of the time, we're going to page, you're going to page through the whole book with me of Revelation. Don't worry, this will not be an eternally long sermon. But I have one slide to put up, and it's this. This is really... The message of the book of Revelation can be almost boiled down to just, just to, to this, to the reader. Stay alert, repent, overcome. Stay alert, repent, and overcome. The book of Revelation was written by, by a guy named John. It's, it's probable or very possible that that's the Apostle John. It's also, it's possible it could be another John, that was, you know, John was a fairly common name, uh, a, a guy that was in the first century. Revelation was probably the oldest or the latest book written, um, like somewhere in the 90s A.D. And it was written by this guy named John, and it's written to a group of churches, seven churches in particular. We'll, we'll talk about them here in a second. And it's a letter to them. And the message is, you know, amidst all of the imagery, amidst all of the, the blood and the, the dragons and the, the plagues and, and all of these different things, trumpets, is really, it was this overarching message to the churches. This is, you know, like John would say, yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about a lot. I, I had this vision. He records, he's like, I had this, this vision or like this dream, but it wasn't just like, it, it was a dream where he was like awake. <laughs> he wasn't sleeping. And he's like, I, I can't explain it, but th this is what I saw, and I'm just going to write that down. And there's all this imagery, but am amidst that, churches, seven, the seven churches, what I want you to know is you need to stay alert. Because Jesus is coming. The, the end is near, is, is a phrase that's used. You need to repent. 
You know, we, need to, we talk about repentance this week. We need to, you need to turn away from what you've been doing. You, you like, so repent is literally to just make a 180-degree turn. You're going one direction, and you're like, uh-oh, this is the wrong direction. I need to repent. And you go completely the other direction. And in this case, you head, head your life back towards God if you're repenting towards God. And then lastly, we need to overcome. The churches, you'll see this in a second. John was talking to these churches. And they were, they were faced with some very, very real and difficult persecution. Some gnarly stuff. And he's like, but, yes, you're, what you're going through is difficult. And you still need to overcome. And this is an important message. This overcome is important for our lullaby talk. Because what we're reminded in, in the book of Revelation, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I want to keep going. What we're reminded about in the book of Revelation is, yes, Jesus has saved you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've, you've, you've prayed and you've given your life to him and said, I want to follow you, would you forgive me? Would you, I repent of my sins. If you've done this before, you're forgiven of those sins. And that those, you know, those sins are, you're no longer identified by those sins. And that's a beautiful thing. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But the, 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 the gospel is true. And at the same time, despite the fact that we've been forgiven our sins, we still need to overcome. He's talking to the early church and he's like, yes, Jesus has died. The victory is his. And you still need to stand strong. And the message is still the same for us today. Yes, God loves you. He loves you so much. And if you've given your life to him, he's forgiven you, and you are, you are clean of your sin, and you still need to fight. You still need to hold fast. And you're like, this is the phrases that are used in, um, in, in Revelation. You need to hold fast. You need to stop being complacent, not give in, be victorious. That, that's one of the words that's used all the time. It's like, hey, to the person who's victorious, I'll give them the kingdom. To the person who's victorious, they'll eat from the tree of life. To the one that conquers, it's like, yeah, but Jesus, haven't we, you, we, aren't we forgiven? Aren't we, you know, we gave you, we, we trust in you for your grace. He's like, yes, and you still need to overcome. You, you realize that? Everybody look at me. You still have to stand. Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you of your sins. And you still need to stand. And there are times where we have to wake up from our lullaby. Christy talked about the first week, how there's like background music in stores. And how that background music, actually, there's studies that show that you buy more if you feel cool while you're listening to the music. Did I just look cool right there? I felt cool at least. <laughs> and then we buy more. And, and, and she's like, we have to stop the music. We have to break the you know, wake up from our lullaby, and that's what this series is all about. Now, before we dive into the book of Revelation, and you're going to need your Bibles. If you have a Bible, please, please open it, because you're going to be paging through it. Before we talk about the book of Revelation, I want to talk about three different approaches to the, the book of Revelation. And I've got three different images here. One of them is not my tea. I'll put this over here. The first one is a Rubik's Cube. A lot of times when, when Christians, especially Christians, if you grew up in the church, this is going to resonate with you. The book of Revelation for most of, of, of evangelical Christianity in the last 50 years has looked at the book of Revelation like this. It's something to solve. 
It's a code to crack. Or maybe it's even a cipher to see the world through new eyes. And I just, man, the more I read and the more I studied this week, the more I was grateful that we're moving away from that as a church. Because you'll see all this imagery, all this symbolism. And of course, symbols represent something, right? And so it's natural to read into it. I guess it's natural for us as humans to read a book and say, what's the ten horns on the dragon mean? You know? And, and, And here's the deal. It probably meant something to someone at some time. John, was, John as he wrote this book, he was using a very, uh, a very well-known type of literature to his Jewish audience. Apocryphal, prophetic, I mean, it's deep-seated in Ezekiel, deep-seated in Daniel, all of these imageries. Like the, those are, they'd be like, oh, I remember that from Daniel. But they weren't thinking, like, and in some cases, they probably were thinking, yeah, that 10, that probably means something for their time in their space. And it might not mean anything for us at this time, and that's okay. And and here's the thing. If we come out of the Rubik's Cube like a cipher to crack, we're going to miss out on something. We're going to miss out. We might even miss out on the whole entire message itself. I had a dream once. This is, I almost, I almost... Um, oh, by the way, before I move on, these are my son's Rubik's Cubes. He wanted you to know that these are his. He can solve this one in 39 seconds. He also wanted you to know that, too. I had a dream once, and I almost, I, I debated sharing this because it, like, it's kind of like, ooh, Josh has dreams. But he, here's the thing. I actually do, like, I dream a lot, and God, it's just something that God and I have. He, I, I have a dream probably every year and a half or two years. It has a lot of meaning. It's very vivid. I remember it when I wake up. A lot of my dreams I don't remember. Maybe you're the same. But they have a lot of meaning. I've had, I haven't had one in a couple of years. This might, the one I'm about to share is probably the last one that I had. And it's just something we have. It's, I don't like, I've never moved across country because I saw something in a dream. You know, like, but, and and it, it don't, like, base my life off of any of it, but it's just these little kind of Easter eggs that God and I have. So take it for what it's worth. I had this dream that I, I had, was getting a tour of heaven, okay? And, and here's what I don't believe. I didn't go to heaven. This wasn't, act, like, I'm not saying this is heaven. I'm just saying I had a dream <laughs> where I got a tour of heaven, and it was awesome, and I, the, the main part of the dream that I remember is there was like a tour guide and I was in a group of people and we walked into this building that was so huge and so vast and expansive inside that it would be impossible to build on this earth. When I looked up and I was in the back, it's this room that was like, football fields and football, like you could put this whole shopping center inside this one room. And then on top of that, when I looked up, it was hundreds of feet high. The ceiling was hundreds of feet above me. Like just, like, like modern engineering, you know, in this world can't make what I saw. And what's funny is, and this is, this is I think God and I, like I kind of laughed with God about this. I never got to see the front of the room in the building. I only got to see the back wall, <laughs> and it was magnificent. 
I don't even know what the building was for, but I'm looking up, and, and, and I'm looking up, and I'm looking at this expanse of, and this wall coming down. And as I look down, I notice that on the wall is the whole wall is made of three different kinds of materials. One, and they're real small. They're all the same geometric, like kind of diamond-shaped. Some of it was wood, some of it was stone, and some of it was metal. And all of those were somehow working together, holding this huge structure up. And I'm not, I mean, I'm no contractor, but I built enough things to know working with those mixed, you know, like that, that would be hard to do, especially so small and at such a grand scale. And then I woke up. And I was just like, ah, oh, this is so cool. Like, like, I thanked the Lord. Like, it was, I just kind of worshiped. Like, God, you're so cool. I can't wait to see what you have in heaven. Now, imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine, Jan, if I wrote you a letter explaining my dream, this vision that I had of heaven. I said, you know, I don't know what it means, but it's cool, and I wanted to tell you about it. And you wrote back and said, Jan, and Jan said, oh, I know what it means. You know what, Josh, I bet the wood in there, well, Jesus died on a cross. And so the wood probably signifies the cross, right? And then the stone in there, could the, the stone that you saw, Jesus is the cornerstone of what we believe, you know? So maybe the stone represents Jesus as the cornerstone. And then metal. There's a lot of metal made in China. And so what if the metal represents China? The, the ones who are laughing the most are probably the ones that grew up in church <laughs> hearing about these theories, taking these very abstract, beautiful, metaphorical, allegorical symbols that are all over the book of Revelation, and watching people say, you know what, I bet you the locusts in these, you know, there's seven plagues, and one of them is locusts, you know that the new, this is back in the 90s, you know the new Blackhawk um, helicopters, they look a lot like a locust. I bet you that's what John was seeing. You know, what was one of some of the other ones? Oh, like, like we were constantly, people were constantly trying to figure out there's Gog and Magog in the book of Revelation and trying to figure out if which one's China and which one's Russia. And then, but Iran needs to fit somewhere in there too because they're pretty bad. Maybe Iran is the beast or the Antichrist. And then, of course, there was <laughs> Saddam Hussein is in Iraq, which is modern-day Babylon, like li literally Baghdad probably is standing on top of where the ruins of Babylon. And that tickled our brains, like, wah, you know? And here's the thing. We can miss the forest for the trees sometimes. When we get into the weeds, and, and here, this is, I was thinking about this a lot this week. When it comes to the book of Revelation, it's a lot easier to try to figure out what everything means rather than what we're supposed to do individually or as a church. It's a lot safer to try to figure out, oh, what does that mean? And maybe has this time passed yet? Time, times, and times and a half, you know, like is it three and a half years? Like is that, was it literal? Or, you know, are we in the tribulation? Is Christ reigning for a thousand years? And we get into the weeds and all of this stuff, and, and we treat it like a Rubik's Cube, 
when John wasn't like, That's not, I'm not giving you a Rubik's Cube. This isn't something for you to figure out. But if we're not careful, we can, we can fall into this trap of like, this all must mean something. <laughs> I got to show this video. Put that video on, Trevor. This is the double rainbow guy. If you've never seen the double rainbow guy, you're in for a treat. Ready for it? Double rainbow, oh my gosh. It's a double rainbow all the way. Whoa, it's so cool. Whoa, man. Whoa. Whoa, oh my God, oh my God. Oh my God. Whoa. It's starting to even look like a triple rainbow. Oh my God, it's full on double rainbow all the way across the sky. So that it goes on for like five and a half more minutes of that, of him crying and, and asking, what, what does this mean? And, and I show you that because I feel like, again, we can miss the forest for the trees. This guy is, is obviously having a very profound experience, probably on drugs, not quite sure. But he's, he's having this experience, and he's like, what does it mean? And here's the thing. I think God made rainbows. I think God made rainbows to bring meaning to our lives. Absolutely. I just saw a rainbow this last week. We were in Maui, Chrissy and I, for our 20th. It was awesome. We were watching, uh, I was watching a rainbow being, it was like being printed as the rain was moving left to right. I'd never seen that before. It was like, this is amazing. But I didn't ask, what does this mean? But I did worship. And it, it is, it, that kind of stuff is made for us to look up. It's made for us to feel small. It's made for us to even feel blessed like God puts those in the skies to remind us of promises, to remind us of his beauty, his creativity. But if, there's a point where if we look into it too much, and I know I'm belaboring this point, but it's so important when it comes to coming to the book of Revelation that just we can't miss it. As long as we're trying to figure out something that's happening out there, in the book of Revelation, oh, Iran is really, you know, as, as long as we're focused on how Iran fits into the equation, we're not thinking about ourselves. And we're not thinking about, go ahead and put that slide back up, what we're supposed to do to stay alert, to repent, to overcome, to get serious about our sins, to be ready for Christ's return. And I just wanted to set the stage with that because so much of us, so many of us have grown up in the church where there's whole novels written on the details of the book of Revelation. And we miss what John, like, I think going back to my letter that I wrote to Jan, I think John at times is like, you guys are missing the point. I don't even know what some of that stuff means. I just saw it. 
And I wrote down, I was, I was overcome and overwhelmed by the glory of God, and I wanted you to share that in that with me and allow it to change your life. So that's one of the approaches to the book of Revelation is we can treat it like something to solve, a, a code to crack, and I think that would be missing the point. The second way that we can approach it, and <laughs> this next, this will be like a 30-second one compared to this last one, is some of us look at the book of Revelation and it feels like this. It's so big. This is my systematic theolo uh, theology book. I, I love this book. And honestly, you might look at this book and be like, I could never read that. You're actually much closer to reading this than you think because there's just all these little different tidbits and in, in, uh, in talking about the different, the, the trinity or the, the deity, of, deity of Christ or what does sin do and all these different things. If you had uh, questions, theological questions, this has answers. But this can feel like really heavy. Or I was even going to put like a Stephen King book on this pile. Like some of us is like, that's really scary. I don't want to read that. The book of Revelation is like, yeah, you know, or really creepy. Like, you know, 19, I was going to put 1984 on there. Like it has to do with the future, but yet it's not the future. It's dystopian. It's dark. It's all these things. And maybe you've read enough of, of Revelation. It feels like that. And so your approach, instead of trying to lean in and figure it out, is to lean back and be like, I just don't know. And just kind of stay away from it. You've never read it. Maybe you, I'll stick with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I like Jesus. And those, I'm not sure about Jesus here. That's you. I, again, today is just getting closer, taking a step towards it. That's one approach to the book of Revelation. Here's the approach that I think it was meant when, when, when John wrote it. Is meant to be exactly what it is. A letter. And this one has, this one has a seal on it, a wax seal on it. It's meant to be a letter, and I was even thinking about it this week. It's meant to be kind of like an open letter to the churches, open letter to the churches of, of Asia Minor back when John wrote that almost 2,000 years ago. It was to them like, hey, keep this, keep this around. Keep thinking about these things. But what the book of Revelation for sure is, no matter, no matter what, everybody agrees, it's an open letter to the churches of all generations, every church for every time, including this one. And so as we dive in, I want to talk, I want, I want to just, like, these questions are, are, are on my mind. Because we're going to look at, we're going to look at um, some of the, the letters, some of the things that John wrote to these specific churches, and he calls out specific things about them. Hey, you do this really well. It's Jesus, Jesus talking to churches, but this I hold against you. Like, like yes, you, you're doing really well here, but I want you to keep doing well. I want you to keep it up. And the question, I wrote this down in my notes, is like, I wonder what Jesus' letter to Colorado Life Church would be. <laughs> like if Jesus said, you know, like there's Sardis and there's Philadelphia and there's Laodicea, there's Ephesus, all these churches, we'll look at them here in a second. But what would... Jesus' letter to the church of Evergreen would be. be interesting. What would he hold against us? What would he ask us to repent of? What would he ask us to endure? It's interesting, isn't it? That's, that's the book of Revelation. You know you're reading it right when it starts answering these questions. When, it's, when, it, when it pushes you to stay alert, to repent, to overcome. So with that, open to Revelation 1. 
I'm going to go, this is probably, I think this will take about 10 minutes. And then I want to go back and look at the letter to Laodicea to close. That's where we're going with the rest of our time. But it's written by, you know, it's written by, the, uh, by a guy named John. We think maybe the Apostle John. And he's like, uh, look at verse, this is probably verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Happy is the man or blessed is the man who reads this prophecy. And happy are those who hear it, uh, hear it, read, and pay attention to its message. For the time is short. See, there's that urgency. Hey, be alert. Be ready. Look at verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, to him who loves us, he's talking about Jesus, and has set us free from our sin through his own blood, who has made us a kingdom of priests in his own, to his own God and Father, to him be the glory and power for timeless ages. Amen. Keep going. Then he writes a letter to the seven churches, and Jesus appears. This is in 1, verse 9 and following. And Jesus has, it looks a little different than the last time John saw him. <laughs> he's all lit up. He's like, when, he, when I looked at his face, it hurt. You ever done a sun stare? That's what Jesus looked like <laughs> in this. Like, I, I can't look at you for that long, Jesus. His voice, look at this. this I, can't, I don't know what verse this is in because my, my translation is a little bit different than yours. Um, it's probably around verse, no, uh, his voice had the sound of a great waterfall. What verse is that? It'd be like 12 or 13 maybe. Nice. Okay. 15. His voice, this is, this is him describing Jesus. His voice had the sound of a great waterfall. I love that. I saw that in his right hand he held seven stars. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face was ablaze like the sun at its height. He's got seven. So there's seven of everything in the book of Revelation. Seven is the number of perfection. It's God's number. So he's seven stars. I'm not sure exactly what they mean, but he's also in this a little bit. He talks about seven lampstands, and we learn through this that the lampstands are actually the churches. And it's a really cool image of that, that, that while we're meeting here, that God's light, his fire is burning in us as a light to the nations, right? It's a cool imagery with the lampstands. Then he talks to Ephesus, and he's like, Ephesus, you know, you're doing great, your, your endurance is good, and, you're, but you, and your love, you love me so much, but your love has grown tired, so I hold that against you. Be victorious. Stay the course. Then in chapter 2, verses 8, he talks to Smyrna, and they're like poor, but they're rich. He's like, you're, pot, you're, 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 you're being persecuted a ton, but you are rich because of your faith. Then he goes on to Pergamum and Tyrantara. And um, in chapter 3, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and he follows this. There's this pattern that he follows with all of them. Hey, hey you guys, you're doing good in here, but I want you to stay alert. You need to keep enduring. You need to, to and he, uh, he says repent, almost all of them. He's like, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent, and you need to overcome. Be victorious. And for those who are victorious, they will be given you know, the keys to the kingdom, they'll be given uh, to eat from the tree of life. Keep going. Because I, I could talk a lot. He talks about the four living creatures in chapter 4. And this is where it ties into Daniel. If you've read the book of Daniel, there's four living creatures. That one looks like a lion, a calf. One has a face like a man. The other one's kind of like an eagle. And his readers have been like, oh, I remember that. So you're tying. And the point is not like, oh, are eagles evil? 
or, you know, like, like lions, like, should we all have lions? It's like, no, that's not the point. Don't get into the weeds. The point is he's tying back into, this is the timeless message that's been, that God has revealed to us. Every millennia or so, one of us gets to see the end. It gets to see God's glory on display. I'm writing this. I get to see it. The other thing that's really cool, here's a side note about the Greek in this book. So the, the, the Gospel of John, part of the reason why some people think that maybe John didn't write this is because the, the Greek is so different here than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is very clean. It's very simple. It's very approachable. Maybe, you know, as you've read the Gospels, you're like, I like the Gospel of John. I can just, it, it makes sense to me. John wrote it that way, but then he gets here, and it's, it's scattered. Like, literally, the translators are, uh, that I, I was reading about this week were saying, we, the, he'll talk in the future tense, and then the same sentence will be the present tense, and then go back to the past tense. It's jumping all around, and one of the, the commentators that I read was, is it possible <laughs> that John actually was the one who wrote this, and yes, they're different because he was so frantic, <laughs> That he was actually just writing it out as it was being shown to him. Like, hey, son of man, write this down. I am. Come on, just slow down, I am. Jeez, you know, like, help me out. Like, but he's trying to, can you imagine having to be like, see all this stuff, these signs and these wonders playing out in heaven and having to put words to that? It's going to come out a little bit jumbled. It's going to come out not quite right. And so we need to kind of bear with him. So he's got these four living creatures, and then all of a sudden the lion shows up. And it's Jesus. And they, they talk about um, the, the sealed book that nobody can open. And John starts weeping in this vision. He's like, someone, please, can, can someone open the book? And, he's, and then they, the heaven cries out, there is someone who can open the book. And John turns and sees, and this is so cool, because he had just seen Jesus as the lion. And so he, I think he's expecting to turn around and see Jesus the lion opening this book, which is fitting, like this, this, this regal, powerful creature is the one that gets to open the book. And he turns, and what does he see? A slain lamb. Oh, like, like the epitome of weakness. Like one of the most fragile, little, cute, I mean, lambs are cute. And this one's not even, like this one's, it, not only is it a lamb, it's dead, it's slain. And that's Jesus. And it's a reminder that even in the end, even when Jesus is going to come back and make everything right, he's going to come and bring justice, he still comes as a lamb. And it's a reminder to the churches, hey, churches, you're going to suffer. And I, he just told them seven times each, be victorious, be conquerors. But I want you to be a conqueror by being the lamb, by laying down your life. And that's how I want you to overcome. Isn't that beautiful? That happens a lot in the, the book of Revelation where you think you're going to see one thing and then all of a sudden there's a lamb there. Keep going. He weeps bitterly. Oh, no one can open it. And the lion, he said, the lion, the tribe of Judah can. And then he turns and he sees the lamb. This is in chapter 5, verse 8. And then after that is just a whole bunch of worship. I had never seen this before. It's been a, probably a good 10, it's been a hot minute, 10 or 15 years since I really dove in to Revelation, the book. And I was amazed by the worship. Just every, every other chapter, there's a whole throng of people just throwing themselves down before the throne. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. 
and, and uh, the elders, the, the elders, there's these elders in there, 24 elders. These guys are just doing burpees all the time. Literally, up, down, up, down, like just like, oh, now we got to hit the deck again and worship the Lamb, worship God the Father. And it's like, man, we, we, we need to worship more. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and on and on and on. And then there's the horses, chapter 6. There's a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and like a green sickly horse. And each of these are, they, this is as the Lamb is breaking the seals. There's seven seals on this, this scroll or on this book. And he breaks one, and, and, and the white horse comes out. He breaks another one, and a red horse comes out. He breaks another one, a black horse comes out. Um, and they all have different things. They have crowns, swords, scales in their hands. Um, the fifth one, uh, he, he breaks the fifth seal. Um, and this one's interesting. He breaks the fifth seal, and then all of a sudden these martyrs, the people who had died being persecuted for Jesus, they cry out. They're like, Lord, how long is this going on? We're, we're growing impatient for the suffering on earth. How long will this go on? And then the angel says, hey, you need to be patient just a little bit longer. Sixth seal is the wrath of God. Then all of a sudden you find the, the 144,000 people, 12,000 people from each tribe of Israel, and it, it, there's different commentators believe maybe maybe those are Jewish converts to Christianity, or maybe those are we are the New Jerusalem. So some of those are just Christians, Gentiles that became Christians. We're not quite sure, but what's cool is go to chapter seven, verse nine. All of a sudden, it just kind of breaks. And here's the other thing that you have to realize when you're reading the book of Revelation, guys. We're so Western, I and mean, we come by it pretty honestly. Like we, you know, born and raised here. And I got to trap, you know, even going to Uganda, which is not a, a Western society or a, a civilization, it's, it, and it's not necessarily the ancient biblical civilization, but I, I was remarking at how much closer they are to that worldview than, than I'll ever be because of my affluent, white, modern, Western, we're linear. Like, okay, if it's three, if you say you're going to be there at nine o'clock, be there at nine o'clock, you know? On time is 10 minutes too late or whatever. They're like those, those are Western things, right? And then, but in the ancient world and in this, you'll see time. This is a time warp, guys. When you enter this book, you're like, whoa. The, and, and I think John was like, okay, w that happened then. But then there's one coming up here in a second with the woman, which is probably the birth of Jesus and Mary and that kind of stuff. But time goes really fast. And then all of a sudden it's like Jesus has grown and now he's dying on the cross. And, the, and all of this is happening. And then it goes back to the devil being thrown out of heaven. And that didn't happen probably at the same time. So where, wh which one's which? And it's like, yes, time. <laughs> it's relative. Thank you, Einstein. And the book of John, like the book of Revelation, it's like it, it helps us see, like it's trippy. So time, where was I? So we're, oh yeah, we're at this point in time, and, and I don't know, again, like all of a sudden it shows this heavenly, uh, in chapter 7, verse 9, it shows this heavenly scene where, this is so cool. They, um, when I looked, verse 9, when this was done, I looked and before my eyes appeared a vast crowd beyond man's power to number. Okay, pause for a second. Have you ever wondered about the people who don't know about Jesus? That God, you know, like they just never even heard his name. The Bible in so many different places talks about 
the nations, the tribes, they will bow down, all of them, like, just, like, will come before, like, and, and it talks about heavenly hosts, and these aren't angels here, these are people from every tribe coming and kneeling before the Lamb. They come from every nation and tribe and people and language. It's so beautiful. And they stood before the throne of, throne of the Lamb, dressed in white robes with palm branches in the, their hands. They shouted with a great voice these words, Salvation belongs to our God, hashtag worship. They're worshiping again. Who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Man, I got goosebumps right now thinking about that. John got to see that. Poor guy had to write about and try to get us you know, in, in his headspace. Then there's the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets, or no, we've had, have we done the seven trumpets? No, we haven't done the seven trumpets. And the seven, uh, in this, uh, no, there's the seventh seal which starts the seven trumpets. The seventh seal is really, this one would have been trippy. After all of this cacophony of worship, all of these crazy images, the seventh seal, this is the final seal. This is supposed to be the big one, right? Guess what? It's silent in all of the heavens and the earth for half an hour. That had to be the longest half an hour of his life. He's like, wait, so what's next? And then there's, uh, let's, then there's the first trumpet, and the trumpets bring plagues, hail and fire. Then there's the poisonous, uh, a, a, a blazing mountain, or maybe like a comet or meteor, poisonous star. Light from the, from the sky uh, diminishes on the fourth one. Um, the fifth one, there's the, the angel from the abyss comes, and it's like an angel of death. There's misery on earth. And here's the thing, like, so again, we've leaned into these like, oh, so if we see a shooting star or if there is a meteor, maybe that means that that has come. And it's just, guys, I can't, when you read, especially the Old Testament, there's this one, I almost, I almost brought it up for today, I'll just tell you about it quick. 2 Samuel 22 is, is a song of David, and it specifically says, this is a song that he wrote right after he was delivered from the hands of Saul. And some other people that were against him. You remember there was a time in David's life where everybody was against him. And the Lord delivered him. He was saved throughout it. It took years, but the Lord delivered him. When David recounts him being saved by God, he describes it this way. I cried out to heaven, and God heard my cry. And like a dragon came with smoke coming out of his nostrils and fire breathing out of his face came and rescued me, and he brought me up to the highest of high in the, in the heavens. Now pause. <laughs> Did any of that happen, really? No. It was like one day Saul was chasing David, and the next day he wasn't. <laughs> and David was saved, but he's like, my salvation was like that. And that was very common within the Bible to use imagery like that. So these images of these, these plagues, maybe they're real, but maybe they're just, you know, like, like, Maybe they're, they're symbols for other things. Um, keep going. Sixth trumpet is a destroying angel. Um, there's four, four angels of destruction, and, and it says clearly, like, even amidst that destruction, there, no one, people don't repent, which helps us to see what the, the, what, what the purpose of those things, those pestilence, because let's be honest, guys, sometimes we need bad things to happen before we wake up from the lullaby. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is what life is about. I was talking with a friend of mine just the other day. 
who's a pretty strong agnostic. She grew up Jewish, and was, that's not her thing anymore. And uh, we were, got a chance to catch up, and she, she's had cancer since the last time I saw her. And she's like, Josh, you'll appreciate this because I know you're a person of faith, but, like, it got me questioning, like, maybe there is something out there. And I just listened. I didn't say anything. I didn't be like, well, you know, if you open up your Bible to this, you know, I just listened. And because sometimes we need those interruptions in our lives. And that's the purpose of these plagues. It's not God being mean. It's God saying, hey, I'll, I'll do anything to wake, up, wake you up because I love you. I've poured out goodness, and that wasn't, that's not enough. The goodness, you think it's yours, and it's just leading you further away. And just like uh, in the book of Exodus, the, the, um, the readers would have definitely thought about the book of Exodus with the plagues, all those plagues, the 12 plagues of Exodus. And, this, and the same thing happened there. Pharaoh's heart was hardened in response to God's uh, God's presence. And then it's there's seven, seven thunders, and then John eats one of the seals. No idea what that means. Chapter 10, verse 11, comes these two witnesses, and they're these, like, strong prophets. Look at 11, verse 3. And I will give authority to my two witnesses to proclaim the message clothed in sackcloth for, the tw for 1,200 and 60 days, which is the equivalent of like three and a half years, which is a very common uh, time frame or uh, period of time within the apocalyptic writings. Sackcloths means these were prophets. They were powerful people. They were prophets that were speaking out against what was going on in the world at the time. And they did so, so well, they got killed. And there's the emergence of, of a beast. The beast comes, and I think the beast kills them. But then shortly after, they're resurrected. They come to life. Um, and, and, and people uh, acknowledge God, uh, God in heaven because of that miracle. The seventh trumpet is, I forget what the seventh trumpet is. You'll have to read that on your own. Um, let's keep moving. I want to keep moving. Um, then there's the woman. And again, it's a verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Then I saw a huge, a, a huge sign became visible in the sky. And here's the thing. I used to think, or maybe someone told me, like, oh, John was looking into the future. He was seeing what was actually going on or looking into the past in this case. And it's, no, he saw a huge sign in the sky. It was like, I, I think this, what he saw was almost like a play going on, these visions in the sky. And they're representative of things. I mean, Chris and I were talking about it last night. It's like watching the Nutcracker, you know, and she's, does she, doesn't that chick go into a dream? And then there's like marching dudes and stuff like that. Like, like I think that that was probably more what John saw in these visions was not the actual things happening, you know, locusts that look like helicopters and that kind of stuff. I think what we really saw was just, it was played out in, in an artistic, abstract, symbolic kind of way. And when you do that, you, you don't have to worry about time, right? Time can jump around. It can... It can do a lot in a minute and repre represent a thousand years. So it's, it's a woman who's pregnant. She's in labor. There's a red dragon that comes down from heaven, bring, and he sweeps his tail, and a third of the stars come with him down to earth. And he's trying to eat the baby as soon as it's born. But God keeps that from happening. And then heaven wages war against the dragon. And, and we become very aware in verse 7 and 8 that the dragon is the devil, it's Satan. So some of these things we know what they are, some of them we don't. Um, keep going. 
Then there's the beast. And then there's another beast. It's kind of like thing one and thing two in chapter 12. Um, and they, the second beast causes man to, uh, mankind to worship the first beast instead of God. Um, then there's the mark. You guys, maybe if you grew up in church, you heard about the mark, uh, the mark of the beast, mark of the Antichrist, 666. I have to say this. This is really cool. because there, See, there are things that I think John wrote that he meant very specifically. Look at, um, look at verse... The, what's the last verse or last two verses in chapter 13? 17 and 18. He it says, it, it says uh, the purpose of this was that no one would be able to buy or sell. The people with the mark, you have to have the mark in order to buy or sell things. The mark of the beast. Understanding is needed here. And this is, this is, this is John saying, time out. Hint, hint. I'm, I'm about to, you know, there's something here if you, if you. Let every thinking man calculate the number of the animal. It is the number of a man, and its number is 666. You've heard of 666, and the mark of the beast might be 666 on his forehead. And that was, when we were growing up in church, it was like, oh, the barcode. That, that barcode, stay away from those barcodes. And then, I mean, it, and it, every generation's got a new iteration of it. It's a microchip. That's the mark of the beast. You can't see it. That's symbolic, but that's literally you're going to have a chip in you, and that's to buy things. And I mean, I even heard Christians like credit cards, man. You got you know, like I deal only in cash. Mark of the beast. Okay, you know, just like that. There's, there's, but there. One thing is really interesting. I read this in in several different places. Um, one author says this is undoubtedly refers to Nero Caesar, six six six. Because by means of a simple Hebrew cipher. So there are times where he uses imagery and ciphers. Because in, in the ancient world, most ancient languages don't have a number system and a letter system. They, have le they use letters for numbers. So Aleph was one. Bet was two. The next one was three. You know? Um, undoubtedly refers to Nero Caesar by means of a simple Hebrew cipher. Guesses about it later, its later application have been rife throughout the centuries, but the triple six stands for a concentration of evil, six being the number of imperfection. And then literally, like, if you make a cipher with Hebrew, the Hebrew name of Nero Caesar and the beast, it all, they both add up to 666. But here's the interesting thing. Nero Caesar is already dead. He's been dead for almost 30 years at this point in time. So his point, John wasn't saying, hey, there's one Antichrist, and you've got to be on the lookout for him. He's like, no, there's Antichrist everywhere. They, like, the, the beast is everywhere. The beast is here. <laughs> you know, the beast isn't Iran. Like, again, like I said, when we're focused so much on Iran and what's going on there, we're not focused on the evil that's going on here. And how we're, yeah, maybe we, can, we don't need to have a, a tattoo on our forehead to buy things, but what does money play in your heart and mine to keep us from God? How, how is that keeping it, like, how is money ha have a hold on our heart to where it's keeping us and, and keep, you know, away from, from 777, it's going towards evil, because we're so dependent on it, just, just like being dependent on, you can't buy food unless you have, you know, you see what I'm saying, we have to, we can't miss this, uh, keep going, call to stand fast in chapter 14, you got the grapes of wrath. See, even at least understanding, like, Revelation, you'll understand a lot of literature 
uh, there's so many things that, that find themselves in, in modern literature. Grapes of Wrath, uh, chapter 14. Um, and you've got uh, the wheat. So the believers are the wheat and the, um, the unbelievers are the ones that are the grapes. They're being harvested for wrath. Um, and it's a symbolism of being drunk on Babylon. You got seven, in chapter 15, you got seven bowls, seven angels, seven plagues. You got Armageddon, chapter 16, uh, which happens in a place like where there's been a lot of war in, in the ancient world. It's, it's at a certain location. I'm going to keep going. You got the great harlot in chapter 17 and uh, end of 16. And she is representative of Babylon. Again, here's the thing. John's talking about Babylon. And Babylon was a very real enemy to Israel. But it's been 600 years since then. So when he's talking about Babylon and be on your guard for Babylon, he's not talking about the literal Babylon. He's talking about a Babylon that's in your own culture. Babylon, in this case, is any, uh, any prosperous, godless city or nation. Anything, any, any idea or culture that puts itself at odds with God directly or indirectly. We talked about the subtle nature of Babylon and how it can take us away from God. We have to fight against that. Let's keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, chapter 19. Afterwards, I heard what sounded like a mighty roar and a vast crowd in heaven crying, Alleluia. Imagine like, imagine a crowd so loud that it feels like a roar. That, that's what he's experiencing. Uh, look at verse, uh, this is going to be like verse 7, or 6 or 7. And I heard a sound like the voice of a vast crowd, a roar of a great waterfall, rolling thunder. And they were saying, Alleluia, for the... The, uh, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, has come in his kingdom. Again, worship. And then the, um, Jesus shows up and written on him is, is king of kings and lord of lords. There's also a time where Jesus shows up and he has a name that nobody else can read. <laughs> Dude, how bad is that? that is, like, I'm like, that is a power play right there. And then there's the thousand years reign. He comes back. And we're, and we're not sure if that's a literal thousand years you know, for being such a round number, we think it's like, it's like a long period of time. You've got Gog and Magog in 20. And then finally, 21, and this is where we're going to read. And I, Yeah, let's, let's read this. This is so beautiful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had disappeared. And the sea, which is a symbol for evil, was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride dressed in beauty for her husband. Then I heard a great voice from the throne crying, See, the home of God is with men, and he will live among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And you see here from 22, 21 and 22, this is the focal point, and this is you know, again, literal, figurative, symbolic, allegorical, all of these things. One thing we can know is God is sovereign. God is in control. I believe in the literal return of Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty much unmistakable. Like he, <laughs> there's, a, there's telling and retelling a lot in the book of Revelation. Like they tell one thing and then they tell it again just because it was a good story. It's worth repeating. 
Like Jesus returns a couple times. Like I think it's making the point. Jesus will return. The question is for the reader, for the churches, are you ready? Everybody look at me for a second. Just, just pause for a second. Are you ready for Christ to return? Are you ready to see him face to face, which, by the way, will be terrifying? Because as we face him, we will come face to face with how uh, insignificant and imperfect we are. And are we ready for that? Church, do we live as if this is real and that Christ is returning and, you know, like, there was, I was looking at polls of whether people believe that Christ is going to return in the next 40 years or not. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like, like they, they, I think John thought it was going to happen soon. You know, like, okay, how about Thursday? You know, like, this is going to, you know, you said it's happening soon. Soon for God is different than soon for man, right? Time, that whole time thing. But, like, um, what was I saying? There's this idea that we need to, we need to live with urgency no matter what. Because the reality is, if it happens in our lifetime or not, your, my life and yours could end at any moment. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to sign off on what's, what's behind us as, that's my complete life. If you were to die tomorrow, would you be happy with where things stand? Or would you want it to be a different story? A story of more faithfulness, a story of more courage, a story of more repentance, a story of more honesty. And that's why this series, this, this idea of lullaby is so important. That's why this book is so important. Is it, it wakes us up from the day-to-day, the Tuesday afternoon, the grind, the lull, whatever you want to call it, and puts this eternal perspective on it that one day Christ will come. And that's it. And if you're in Christ, you go up with him, and it's, it's going to be wonderful. But, but th- then we're done. I was talking with a good friend of mine who's one of the most godly men that I knew, that I know, and he's, he was like, Josh, I'm just struck recently by how short a time we have here. How fleet, it feels like, guys, doesn't it feel like so long? I mean, when you're sitting in math class, isn't it like, this is eternity. I'm in eternity right now. Like, this is, yeah, I got, a, I got an amen back there. It feels so long. But the reality is, we're going to blink and it's going to be done. And we'll be, if we're with Christ, we'll be swept up in glory, and that'll be beautiful. And, and then we're going to put a bow on that life that we live. Do you like that life? Do you want to put a bow on that right now? And if not, repent. Turn around. Say, God, I'm wasting my life. I, I, I've wasted time. I, I've gotten taken by the lullaby of these things, and I want to overcome them. I think... Jesus loves that prayer. Uh, he loves that prayer because that's what he's telling his churches. That open letter to the churches that still stands today. Repent. Overcome. Yes, you're doing good, but this I hold against you. That's one of my favorite parts is like, even, like, even though, yeah, you guys, are, you're, I, you, I'm your first love. This is great, but I still hold this against you. Like, Jesus, why are you dogging us so much? It's because he loves us so much. And he has this very eternal perspective that we, that in, an, in an instant, it'll be done. And what will be written, will be written. I want more. I, I think you want more. What would it mean to take on more?
I was going to read Laodicea. We don't need to. That's the book of Revelation. It's, I, I wanted to do that just to whet your appetite. To, for those of us who are over here that are just like, I just, I'm not sure. It, it, I think that's for somebody else to read. <laughs> it's too scary, too hard to understand, too complex, whatever. I, I hope this is a giant step towards it because it's a beautiful book that's meant to, to, to sweep us, snap us out of our reality and whisk us up into the heavenly realm and have us think about what might be to someday worship with the saints in a loud roar. We're going to sing a song here in a second that's basically, it's, it's called Echo Holy. It's about angels singing. That's our destiny. That's where we're heading if you're in Christ. That's where Jesus wants to take us. And I, I pray for each of us, my prayer for each of us is that we would wake up from our lullaby, that thing that's just keeping our soul a little numb, that's intoxicating our hearts a little too much, and keeping us from God, and that we would be alert, we'd be quick to repent, and we'd be strong to overcome. Let's pray. Lord, I, God, I, just, I love church. I love Sunday mornings where we get to just come and get your perspective on life through, through a guy like me talking, it just it, through opening your word, through, through talking with one another, through singing songs of worship. Lord, we come away different. And I pray for my friends. Lord, I, I pray those things. What would your letter to us as a church be? What, would you, what do you hold against us? What are you asking us to repent of? to stop playing games and to face and be honest. What are you asking us to endure? I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to know what those things are in the weeks to come as we, as we leave this topic behind us. And then, Lord, you'd also grant us the courage to actually do these things so that at the end of life we can stand in your glory as good and faithful servants that didn't waste our lives, that didn't get caught in the lullaby, but we got caught up in glory and we lived lives differently because of it. Pray all this in your name. Amen.